Hello and welcome to the COVID-delayed episode 63 of the Alfa Romeo Driver podcast, brought to you by the Alfa Romeo Owners Club. I'm Guy Swarbrick, and those of you who are regular motorsport viewers or fans of Gran Turismo on the PlayStation may well recognise the voice of this week's guest, commentator and voiceover artist Tom Brooks. Good afternoon, Tom. Hello, thank you very much for having me. We'll get on to your career shortly, because I think that's going to be the thing that's that's most interesting to our members. But I, the place I wanted to start with is you've done a little feature for us for our upcoming October issue about your current and soon to be ex, I believe, <laughs> 147 GTA. So how did that whole process come about? When did you acquire the car and why? Well, it sort of became a thing last April, so 2021. Essentially, my dad is a mechanic, has been a mechanic for all of his life since he was about 16, 17 and restored cars in his spare time. Um, Anyway, he then moved house a couple of years ago and through a series of events, he effectively sort of lost his job at the start of last year. And I was in a position where I said, well, look, why don't you come and work for me a couple of days a week and you know restore some cars? And he said, that's a great idea. So that was the idea. The problem was, obviously, we needed some cars to restore. And I've always been interested in the 147 GTA. It's always been something that's been on my radar. I mean, having a a 3.2 litre V6 engine, I think, is phenomenal in a hot hatch. And I'd I'd always sort of had a fascination with them. So I thought to myself, I'll see if I can find one out there that needs a bit of work. And as luck would have it, there was one sort of not too far away. And and that's kind of how the project started. Because the GTA is in a kind of interesting position at the moment in that a, a really good one's really quite expensive now. Um, but there are still some some cheaper ones around that that need a bit of work. So I assume it was it was one of the latter examples. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, when we got it, I went to look at it. The chap who owned it actually had three on his driveway, and I thought, like, okay, right, well, he clearly likes his cars, but none of them were in working order. <laughs> so we, we, I saw this one that we went to look at, and I thought, okay, well, it needs a paint job straight away because the the lack appeal was horrendous. But he'd done the mechanical work too. It's so the engine and the gearbox, etc., was all good. So we were starting from a relatively solid base. However, it's one of those things that when you look at then doing a paint job on it, you've got to think, okay, right, we need to strip the car back. If we're stripping the car back and taking bits off, we might as well then look at replacing certain bits with newer bits, you know, to try and make it a more saleable car at the end of it. It just ended up being one of those projects that I kind of got a bit carried away with, to be honest. <laughs> and any horrors other than the paintwork as you as you started to get deeper into it? To be honest, not really. I mean, the main thing that I noticed was just getting bits off of the car, just bolts were seizing. The body kit in particular, so the side skirts, etc., were a nightmare. I mean, fortunately, I had my dad doing all of this for me. So I, again, very lucky position. I didn't have to worry about it. I just had to hear about what a pig it was of a job <laughs> when we got when he got home from work. But yeah, it, other than that, we were relatively lucky. The car was pretty clean underneath. It had a little bit of surface corrosion here and there. But obviously, as we were doing a respray on it anyway and taking it almost back to bare metal in some instances, I wasn't too worried about it. So we got quite lucky in all honesty i was i was you know kind of dreading thinking oh we'll get up on the ramp and it'll be just be a an absolute horror show under there but it was it was relatively good and there's a few things that are fairly common on on all 147s but but certainly on on gta's in terms of things like uh, suspension bushes creaking and and stuff like that any any consumables other than liquids <laughs> Well, we replaced all of the suspension on it. So we put coilovers on the car. We rebushed the suspension at the same time as well. So we replaced all of the bushes with poly bushes. Reason being that I wanted it to be a car that I could enjoy driving, but also I wanted it to sort of be sympathetically modified, if, if that makes sense. It's kind of like an OEM plus. So things like coilovers to make it handle a little bit better, a little bit less body roll. Same with the bushes and that sort of thing. So 
you know, mechanically it was it was relatively good. You know, we did very little to the engine and the gearbox, to be honest. We put a diff in it, the engine, we just gave it a full service. But other than that, it's it's running as strong as it ever has done. And, you know, touch wood, it's not let me down yet. I was going to ask you about a diff because obviously that's the other common modification for, for the GTA. Did you manage to drive it before and after and, and compare the difference? Yeah, so I didn't actually drive the car before we uh, actually started work on it. My dad drove it. We lived on a private road, so we were quite lucky to be able to do that. But he's got a trader's policy and I don't. So he was the one who was able to take behind the wheel and get an idea for things. We drove it up and down the road a couple of times and he said, yeah, you know what, it feels okay. Obviously, it needs a little bit of work doing to it mechanically. But otherwise, you know, there was nothing creaking, nothing banging, no knocks. The clutch wasn't slipping. The engine pulled in all of the gears. So like I say, from a base point of view, we actually had a really, really good starting point. But my first drive of the car was once we'd finished the restoration. So it was incredibly frustrating though doing it because I heard the car and I fell in love with the sound of the engine when we did the first drive of it. And then obviously we stripped the whole thing out. So I wasn't able to hear it run for <laughs> six months. You know? So it's just that they're like, I really want to be able to drive this. And as the car was sort of getting, we were finishing it, I was sat in the driver's seat and Deb was like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I just, I want to get out and drive it. You know, I want to get, get out and experience the car. Well, re- regular listeners of the podcast will know I, I had a 147 GTA from you, um, which was a bit of an accident. I went to test drive a 156 diesel sport wagon <laughs> <laughs> and went out for a test drive in a GTA while I was there and put a deposit down. But I think my first set of Bridgestone SO2 tyres lasted about 4,500 miles, the fronts. That's pretty good going, to be fair. Yeah. Well, you yeah, kind of get for one of those. <laughs> you do start driving around it. I think the, the second set lasted about nine. That's not too bad. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've, I've, I've gone through tyres a little bit. Unfortunately, with this one, we, I've hardly... I've driven maybe 300 miles in it since we've finished the the restoration. So I've not actually seen what it's like on the tires, but obviously with the diff, you're not spinning it up those, those wheels constantly. So uh, yeah, I'm, it's been relatively good to me so far. And for sale at the moment, or possibly even sold by the time the article comes out, probably not by the time the podcast comes out in a couple of days, but. No, well, that's the thing. So my dad, as I say, he restores cars and this is kind of what he's doing as a business now. When I said to him, you know, why don't we sort something out where you come and work for me for a couple of days? Uh, we started on the GTA and I thought, well, that'll be quite good because essentially, obviously, when you're starting a business and trying to build a brand, you need something that's going to be relatively quick to kind of get out there in terms of content. So we made a whole video series around this restoration project on YouTube called Project Alpha. So I do a bit of YouTube on the side of my normal job. And I said, well, look, why don't we do this car? I'll vlog the whole series and we can go from start to finish and it will help build your profile up. It'll help me because I'll get a bit of an audience from it as well. And everybody's happy. Now, the thing is, I actually bought Jag E-Type about three years ago, and that was a project that we were going to start work on. We haven't actually started it yet because <laughs> it's a it's a nut and bolt restoration. I could just see it being one of those things that, again, you, sh- you know, you shot blast it down. It's going to take a couple of years to do it. And that's why, again, when I was looking for a car to restore, the GTA was kind of sticking out to me. And I was like, actually, that would be would be quite good fun. So uh, that's kind of where we where we started with it. And yeah, it, it's it's one of those things that now we finished it, I love it and I love driving it and I wouldn't be selling it if it wasn't for a lack of room. But obviously there's only so <laughs> many cars that you can keep in the garage. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll um, we'll put a link to the YouTube series in the uh, in the, the podcast notes. Let's talk about the day job a bit because it's, it's quite an unusual day job. There aren't a lot of people who do what you do. Um, so... <laughs> How did you get into um, motorsport commentary? 
Um, it's a bit of an interesting one. So I'm 25 now and it was about oh, 12 years ago. So I was 13 and I was at school at the time and there was a radio station based within my school. And I was, I had long hair. I played guitar. I was just a bit of a misfit at school as, as you know, some people are. And I just sort of didn't really fit into any crowd. So, you know, socially I wasn't going and hanging out with people every weekend or whatever. And I was just kind of looking for something to occupy my time because being in a band and playing guitar was fun. But, you know, I, I thought, well, I'm probably not going to be able to make a living out of that. There's a lot of musicians who have tried and failed and I don't want to try and add myself to that pile. Anyway, so this radio station opened in my school and it's a fully fledged station. It just happened to be in school for funding, basically, because when you're in school and stuff, you can get grants for teaching uh, children and education and that sort of thing. So this whole project started and I just wandered in one day and we were doing a project on it in, in my IT class. And I just said, well, look, I'm doing a project on this. I just kind of wanted to go there and get a bit of a yeah, heads up on what you guys are about, because I'm by nature, I'm really competitive and I always like to try and have a bit of an edge over people. So I was going in there before to try and find out what I was getting myself into, basically. And I was fortunate that my voice dropped at quite a young age. So obviously on the radio, it doesn't so really matter. this is your original radio slash commentary voice. Well, it's developed a little bit since then, because as you get older, obviously it, de- it deepens a little bit. But fortunately, it's, uh, it, you know, it's funny because I, I heard a recording of me when I was about 15. Oh, it must have been about three or four months ago now, just an, an old archive I've got somewhere. I was like, oh, I don't actually sound that different, to be fair, which is kind of a good thing, because the beauty of the job, obviously, when you're doing radio is as long as the voice holds up, you can kind of get away with it. The difficulty with it, with it was, though, is because I've always had quite a, I guess, a mature sounding voice, if you like, is that nobody ever believed I was 13 and doing the radio because you get a perception of what people look like in your head yeah. when you hear, an, hear a voice, don't you? And then you look and you're like, oh, you look nothing like I thought you did. But sorry, anyway, getting back to it. So again, started doing radio, trained up over a couple of months, started doing a show, stayed there for seven years in total. And about halfway through that, I was about 16 and Again, still at school and just sort of coming towards the end of year 11 and thinking, well, what am I going to do for a living? And I thought, well, you know, I quite like using my voice. I love doing the radio, but there was no, there's never any much of a future I kind of saw myself with, you know, doing that sort of thing. But I thought, you know, I I really like motorsport and I like using my voice. So why don't I try commentating? So I just went into one of the studios one day and found this old Formula One video uh, lap of Michael Schumacher getting pole position and it had no commentary on it. And I just thought, you know what? Okay, I'm going to hit record on the microphone. I'm going to put some commentary over it. I'm going to stick it up on Facebook. And, you know, as, as long as nobody shoots me down, that'll be that'll be fine. And, and some people commented on it and said they really liked it. So I then did another and another. And I thought, actually, maybe this has got some potential to kind of go somewhere. So that's kind of how it started. And, and um, it kind of developed from, from that to to where we are now in a roundabout sort of way. So what was the first professional gig as a, as a motorsport commentator? Oh, it depends what your class is professional, I suppose. I mean, my first my first sort of professional commentary job was a 24-hour endurance race, the Citroen 2CV race at Anglesey. It was at the time. This was 2015, so I'd have been 18, something like that. So it's a couple of years in. So when I started out, I basically made it my mission to meet as many people as I could. So I thought, right, I'm going to start commentating. So I'm going to go to the auto sports show, big you know car show that happens at the start of the year. And I'm going to introduce myself to every Tom, Dick or Harry. And I'm going to make some DVD showreels of these Formula One videos that I'd done. And I'm going to hand them out to people who I think are relevant. I'm going to put my contact details on the inside. And even if just one person gets back to me, it's kind of worth it. So I handed them out to people. And the, the only person who actually got back to me was uh, David Croft, who's the Sky 
by F1 commentator. And he came back and said, well, you know, this could be improved, that could be improved. And I just thought that's, given his stature, I thought that was a yeah. really polite thing of him to do. So, so yeah, then anyway, I, I met a few people there because you're networking all the time who ran a motorsport radio station and they were looking for some commentators to cover some events because they basically went to the events and did online commentary. So it doesn't matter where you are in the world, but you can listen to a, a race or whatever it is that you want to do. And one of these races was a 2CB 24-hour race and I started doing that and did one of the races part of their team. And that was my first professional job, I guess, in commentary. And that's kind of where it where it all started. And I know you do proper motor racing and, and I, I use that term <laughs> semi-humorously given given my involvement in our club's virtual motor racing. But you also do mm-hmm. sim racing commentary as well, don't you? I do, yeah. So I, I kind of flip between the two. Um, it's a bit of an interesting one because I started out kind of doing sim commentary. That was, again, when I was starting out at 16, 17, Gran Turismo was a, a big game for me in my childhood and I always wanted to be a part of that somehow. And there's a big online community called GT Planet. It's a big forum for Gran Turismo, people who play it and stuff. And I've been a member of this forum for a few years. And anyway, they started doing these endurance series and again, big online races that they hosted, you know, 10,000 viewers or something like that tuning in. So again, as I was starting out, I thought a great opportunity to get some experience. And the thing is, when you want to do real world motorsport, you can't expect to come in and go straight to Formula One or, you know, MotoGP or whatever it is, because that just doesn't happen. You have to own your stripes, as it were, and, you know, make sure you've got the experience in order to be able to improve. So I was taking every opportunity I could. So, yeah, anyway, I was doing that for a few years. And this was about, I would have been about 19, so a couple of years later. And they, uh, Gran Turismo actually had an event unveiling their latest game in London and GT Planet invited me down because I'd done the commentary because I obviously live in the UK and they're actually an American-based site. So they said, look, why don't you go and do a report for us and we'll send a camera guy down there. I was like, yeah, fine, okay, whatever. So I went there, did the report and they had a load of sim rigs on stage, big auditorium, and they'd had uh, Ben and Edwards, who was a Channel 4 F1 commentator at the time, there the day before, and they'd had this big event. But the day I was there was a media day, so it wasn't quite as as well covered. But there was there was an audience there. And I just said, well, look, if, if you've got these sim rigs, I'm guessing you're going to have people on the stage and stuff. And I, I'm guessing you're going to need a commentator for that. And they said, well, yeah, we do, but we don't have anybody today. And I said, well, look, if you want, I'm here and I do some commentary for GT Planet and, you know, I do Gran Turismo, so I'm quite familiar with it. If you want somebody, I'll do it for you. And they kind of went away and half an hour later came back and said, yeah, all right, then why not? So I went on stage for three hours and just Lagged my way through this, um, through this this sort of afternoon of racing, and I was very fortunate. The producer of this uh, Gran Turismo, Kazunori Yamauchi, who founded the game back in 1997, founded the franchise, was there, and he really liked what I did. So that's how my relationship with Gran Turismo started, and it kind of developed from that point on. So I got an email a couple of weeks later saying, "Hey, we really liked what you did. Could you voice this video for us?" Yeah, sure. And then I didn't hear anything for a few months. And then they came back and said, hey, we've got these events happening next year to launch the game. Would you mind coming along and, and hosting them for us? Yeah, okay, fine. And then um, a year later, they uh, they started the FIA Gran Turismo Championships, as it was then, these big esports events, probably some of the biggest, I'd say, in the world of esports. And that's, you know, kind of developed from there. It, it, was, it was weird because I was working in a full-time job at the time. I was actually working out in Spain in MotoGP. So it, it, my, my career path kind of got to the point where I was 19 and I thought, right, okay, well, I really want to try and secure a full-time job because the hardest thing in this industry is getting consistently paid work. So I thought, right, well, I'm going to gonna try and again, meet people and, and find an opportunity. And, and then one in MotoGP came up for 2017 and I moved out to Spain and worked as part of their team and then started doing the Gran Turismo stuff on the side. Did two years 
out in Spain, MotoGP for one year, World Superbikes for another year, doing league commentary. So that was traveling all around and, you know, tremendous fun. And then Gran Turismo came to me at the end of 2018 and said, hey, would you like a full-time job to come and do what you do with us on these esports shows full-time? And I said, yeah, okay, thanks very much. And here I am today. And of course, Gran Turismo's gain was Arox loss because we did talk to you well, must be six, nine months ago, about being a guest commentator along with Reeve Taylor on our virtual racing. And, and contractually, that, that couldn't, <laughs> couldn't be made to work, unfortunately. No, it, it's unfortunate because what I do with Gran Turismo, I mean, I absolutely love what I do for them, but I've been in a very fortunate position where they, um, they I'm on a retainer deal for them. So any other sort of esports championship, I can't go and work for them. And obviously I get it because they want a specific voice affiliated with their brand and, and that sort of thing. And it's, it's, it's one of those things that you can look at it and think, oh, I'll go and do that because who's going to know or whatever. But it's just that one person that listens to it and then it goes, someone sticks a clip on social media, that clip then goes viral for whatever reason. And then sure enough, you're right in the mess because you know you could be without a job so you've got to be careful and play the right game yeah you talked about the first gig with Gran Turismo and how you were blagging it a bit on the stage Mm. how much preparation goes into a regular event where you know you know you're going to do it you've got the time to prepare what's the process you go through to get ready to, to commentate well, I'll just give you an example. So I'm working at the time of recording this next weekend. I'm at Snetterton for British Superbikes. I'm actually doing a track day there on a bike on Monday as well, my first one in two years. So I'm hopefully I don't turn up in a full body cast, otherwise things have gone terribly wrong. But to give you an example, so I'm there for three days, go down on the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, commentate, back home Sunday night. Easy, it sounds like. But the thing is, it's actually two days of preparation that you need before that. And that's a case of watching up on all the races, writing down notes, making sure you know who the riders are that are going to be involved, knowing what the narrative is of the championship. The thing with BSB, for example, I'm doing three rounds this year. So I did one back in whenever it would have been May time, and I haven't done one since then. There's been five or six rounds. So I'm out of the loop in terms of what's going on with that championship. So I've got to reacquaint myself with everything thing that's that's going on but it's you know it's it's making the notes it's knowing what's going on and the thing that i always found difficult when starting out is there's no form book for commentators notes it's what works for you and you can't go to somebody and say hey what do you do for your notes because their thought process and the way that they work and the way that they write things down or whatever it might be could be completely different to how you do it so i might write some notes down and that could be completely useless for the bloke who's sitting alongside me or whatever it might be and vice versa so it, it can be quite a long, laborious process. And the thing is as well that, especially when it's, and I don't mean this in a derogatory term at all, but when it can be sort of lower echelons of motorsport, like club level racing, the difficulty with that is there's a lack of information out there. If you're doing things like Formula One or when I did World Superbikes or MotoGP, for example, it's pretty obvious that there's going to be stuff out there because everyone knows who, they're, who they are and it's in the media all the time. Whereas when it's Joe Bloggs from down the road who does this as a part-time thing, it, it can be quite difficult to get that information out, you know, out there. So it's about, you know, you go to the events, you approach people, you talk to them and, you know, you have to sort of move past that point of almost anxiety that you have of, of talking to people and that fear of coming across like you don't know what you're talking about or whatever. So yeah, it can be a long process trying to get these notes. And to be honest, it is my least favorite part of the role. I do hate getting notes. And the thing is, it's it, it's completely illogical because once I've got the notes, I'm like, that completely makes sense. Why, you know, I'm, I'm glad I've got that because if there's a red flag and it's an hour and a half long and you've got a fill for that hour and a half, you need to know what you're talking about and know your subject matter inside out. And, you know, preparation is incredibly important, even if it is quite tedious and quite long. Obviously, our listeners won't be able to see this, but you're sitting in a, a voice booth at the moment, which is compact and bijou. 
It's quite warm in here, I've got to be honest. <laughs> plenty, plenty big enough for, for our purposes. But going back to David Croft, who's seen Crofty a couple of times where he's he's kind of shown you the working environment and all the, the things that he's got pinned up on the wall so that he can refer to them and, and appear to know everything when in, in fact he's done the research and he's, he's looking it up. Are, are the conditions always quite that luxurious for you? Not always, no. For example, I did British Rallycross earlier this year and I was commentating from a tent. It was a big gazebo <laughs> tent, but it was a tent nonetheless. And that's the thing, when you when you do different championships, obviously there are different working conditions. And the sad thing is, as a commentator, sometimes you get left behind as a bit of an afterthought. They, they plan all of these events meticulously and then they think, oh, hang on a minute, where's the bloke who's going to talk about it going to go? Oh, we'll put him in a broom cupboard somewhere or, <laughs> or whatever it might be. But it, it's one of those things, you know, it's part and parcel of the job. And Though the working conditions aren't always as luxurious as as you might like them to be, and sometimes technology can let you down. So I've had it before where your your monitor's gone down, your timing screen's gone down, and you're just commentating on nothing basically, and it can be a nightmare to be fair to you. And then you go and do other jobs where, when again, when I was doing World Superbikes, there's a specific sort of standard. You always get three monitors in there. You get a timing screen, you get a world feed screen, you get a track map, so you can see what's going on. And that's like when you when you have those sorts of luxuries, you're like, oh, this is this is really good actually. I've got everything I need to do to do the job and i guess some of that's changed even in in relatively recent times i mean I, I remember going to circuits where there was no tv coverage and and therefore the commentator could only see the part of the track that the commentator could see and you might have three commentators and hand off as you went round the the track mm-hmm. whereas uh, i guess most circuits you've got at least close circuit coverage of of the whole lap I'm very fortunate to be able to commentate in the era that we live in with technology being as advanced as it is. And I never take that for granted because I'm able to, for example, when the pandemic hit, everyone was stuck at home, weren't they? I was fortunate that I could carry on doing my job from home 20 years ago. That would have been a nightmare, wouldn't it? And I'm, yeah. I'm, I, I count myself very lucky to have been able to do that. And you know, I have the facilities here to be able to do this from home. So I can sit here in my vocal booth and I can do some commentary. And for the audience, they can think I'm at the circuit. So for example, when I work for Eurosport, I've done quite a lot of work for them this year with world touring cars and motorbikes and British superbikes or whatever. And 90% of it comes from their studio in Chiswick. So I did a Suzuka 8 hour race, which is obviously in Japan and, you know, big old time difference. But, you know, I was in the UK, so I was up and in the office at 1am kind of thing. It's one of those sorts of things, which is a disadvantage to being on location. But that's that's part and parcel of it. And do you do kind of post-race recorded coverage as well? I'm a motorsport and, and sport photographer. Um, Mm -hmm. And I do quite a lot of track cycling coverage as well. And one of the most bizarre things for me is when I'm sitting in the media center afterwards editing photos, and there's quite often people sitting up in the media tribunes recording the commentary for races that happened three hours ago. Yeah, it it does happen. And that's the thing that you can, again, from an audience point of view, you you probably wouldn't know. And that's, I guess, the kind of good mark of a a professional commentator is that it does seem quite Pretending to be surprised and excited by things that you've seen before. Yeah, and that's also the thing is when you know the result of a race that's happened, you're like, oh, he's gone off. And you're like, (laughs) you've got to make it sound like it's really exciting and that you didn't know what was going on. Case in point, I've actually got to do some commentary for a series after we've recorded this. The races happened last weekend, but I've got to make it, and I know the results of them, but I've got to make it sound like uh, like it's as life. But- um, and will you watch that race through a couple of times and make notes of what you're going to talk about, or do you just do it in one go? 
I try not to because I like the element of surprise with what I do. The difficulty is that when you are recording something, you know that you've got a backup and it's when you do it live and you make a mistake, you think, oh, well, bugger it. That's the mistake done. I can't reflect. I can't change it. I can't replace it. I'm just going to move on from it. Whereas when you're recording something, it's always in the back of your mind. So if you do slip up on a set of words and you think, oh, that's not quite as crisp as it could be, I'm quite critical. And I'm like, I'll go back and I'll redo that. And then sure enough, before you know, you have, I've done this race five times now. I need to just <laughs> give it a break and actually do it. But you, I'm always my own worst critic. And I always love things to be as, as perfect as they can be, because by nature, I want it to be as good of a show of what I can do as, as anybody else wants it to be. So yeah, that that is a tricky thing because I, I, I was doing a race the other day and I was five goes in. And I was thinking, oh, just just go with it. Come on. just It doesn't matter like if you um, or if you slip up over your words because it's supposed to be as live. And if I was doing it live... Yeah. When I'm doing these podcasts, one of the things that I like about it is that I'm always conscious of the fact that it's not live. And we've had a couple of conversations about doing podcasts live at shows and things. And it, it scares the hell out of me because the ability to go back and re-record and... Um, mm. It's just such a nice safety net. And, and I guess we've all sat there watching events and the commentators missed something and then, you know, made a comment that makes it obvious that he's missed it and we're shouting at the television and stuff. How easy is it to kind of f- separate what you're doing from the process and know that it doesn't actually matter that you, you missed it or made a mistake? I'm always, as I say, very critical of what I do. And I, I, for example, I made a mistake when I did World Touring Cars earlier this year. I misread a note and Rob Huff won the race. And I said it was his first win since 2018. He'd actually won last year, but I just didn't see it on my on my notes. I had a list of the winners and I just missed it. It's one of those things. And I beat myself up over it, something chronic afterwards. But everyone was there like, it doesn't matter. No one's going to notice. And no one noticed. It, and, and it's one of those things that you do kind of have to put a bit of separation in with it and not give yourself a hard time. The thing is, when you're doing something live, nothing will ever be perfect. I never come off of air thinking that is as good as it could be and there's nothing I could do to improve it because there's always something that could be improved. And I have to watch myself back sometimes and a lot of people don't like doing that or hearing their own voice back or whatever. I'm kind of used to it now because it's just my job. And I think it's really important to do that, to be like, right, okay, well, I don't like how I phrase that. Okay, well, I was filling here and I didn't like that. All of these sorts of things that, it, you know, it, it's, it's just about improving. And obviously, as I said, we live in a wonderful world of technology, but we live in a very antagonizing world of social media as well, where people do project their opinions and and it does come through. And that's the thing is that when you're commentating on something, obviously the audience at home don't see the fact that you're probably trying to do five things at once where you're looking at a timing screen, you're looking at notes, you're, you've got something going on on the actual race screen. And when you're sat there on your sofa with your 50, 60 inch OLED TV on the wall, you can see everything that's going on. But when you're in a commentary box, you've got probably a monitor that's no bigger than I'd say... 25 inches, something like that on an average. So you do miss certain things. And obviously you're so transfixed on the particular thing that you're talking about that it can be difficult to do it. And I've done it before. I've watched the race and thought, I really called that first lap okay. And then I've gone back to it and thought, I missed that and I missed that and I missed that because you're just so engrossed in what yeah. you're doing, you know. But obviously that's a part of it the audience doesn't see. So it's it's one of those things. They, the audience can be critical and, and often they are, but a lot of them mean it with good intention. So it does happen sometimes though. Like, I, you know, I've, 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 I've commentate on British Rallycross and one of the things is there's two brothers that race together one's called Darren one's called Jason they race in identical liveried cars you're going to get it wrong sometimes that's not your fault is it that's that's, that's them making life hard for you yeah, exactly. It's it's a bloody nightmare, but it, it's one of those things, you know. And and the thing is, you have to accept that when you're going to do commentary or you're going to do something like that, you are going to make mistakes from time to time. And you know, as long as it's not every weekend and everything that you do, then it's you can kind of smooth past it. But, what, what are the the favourite races or incidents from your career so far? Oh, that's a good question. Actually, I've never had that one poised to me before. I love rallycross because it's so fast and frenetic, and it's 
you start the race and it doesn't matter if you have a terrible race because it's four minutes later, it's over. There have been some really good rallycross races that I've commentated on. I did the British Championship. I actually did uh, a series called Nitro Rallycross, which is an American championship that's gone international this year. And I did some of that earlier this year. And uh, and that was terrific fun. There were some really good battles that happened. I'm trying to think of one specifically. I remember when I did uh, World Superbikes back in 2018, I loved that job so much. And I was so disappointed to give it up. And this is the thing. I said, Gran Turismo came to me at the end of 2018 and said, hey, do you want to come work for us full time? And I was like, mm, yeah, okay, maybe I'll think about it. And it took me such a long time to figure out what I wanted to do because it was better financially. It was a case of me being able to move home closer to my family, my friends and that sort of thing. And it was a bit of a no-brainer if you looked at it from the outside. But I also really loved the World Superbike job. And what made it also quite difficult was the fact the final round in World Supersport, it, it had actually rained in Qatar, which never happened. It had a sandstorm, <laughs> and it had a bloody massive shower. And the problem is obviously roads and circuits there just aren't prepared for it. So they don't have the drainage because it just doesn't happen. Anyway, this storm hit. And I thought, well, okay, well, that's it. It's a nighttime race. We're never going to be able to go racing. It had blown three of the cameras down. So it, it was just a nightmare. Anyway, miraculously, they managed to get the track safe for racing. So we went out and we had the race and the Super Sport World Championship went down to the final lap. And it was side by side. Whoever won the race won the championship, basically. And it got to the point where they were halfway through the last lap and the leader tucked the front, crashed out into the gravel. And it was just like one of the most dramatic conclusions you could ever imagine. So that always sticks out as a particular highlight of one of those races where you're like, oh, I was there and I did that kind of thing. And uh, last last rounds of series, particularly challenging when you're trying to do the, the mental arithmetic of of who's in contention. I guess if someone's 30 points clear, it doesn't matter. But if it's a tight championship, does that add to the challenge? It can do, depending on the championship. I was fortunate in World Superbikes, they actually had a live scoreboard, right. so which, which updated sector by sector. So if a if a driver or rider changes positions per sector, it would then update the points tally. So I didn't no, really have no, to do exactly. it. Exactly. I've had that before However, where I've commented yeah, on there are other championships where I You won't get that at Snetterson in the... final round and I've said hey guys do we have the like the permutations for the championship if this is going to go down to the last race and they said oh no we don't I was like well we better get writing that up then hadn't we because otherwise I'm not going to look like I know what I'm talking about case in point I remember five years ago 2017 I was doing a, a Spanish bike championship called the CV Repsol again all part of the sort of media conglomerate that uh, Dorna owns they own several different bike championships and one of them was this and we came down to the penultimate round in one of the classes and I heard from my producer right the rider who's winning at the moment if he wins the race he'll be champion great okay no problem at all came across the line declared him as champion graphic came up on screen as him being champion and then about 30 seconds later I got a note in my ear saying oh actually no we we called that wrong he's not the champion and, and, and I just went oh God, that makes me look like a complete muppet because obviously the audience at home don't know that I'm being fed information. And, you know, fundamentally, it's some, one of those things that I should have double checked as well. So it's not a mistake I've yeah. ever made since then. But yeah, you, you do have to be a bit careful and uh, you have to sort of know what's what can happen, basically. Well, look, this has been fascinating. I think we've probably about time to wrap up. Just one thing that I wanted to ask you, know, there aren't a lot of people who do this and, and probably not in your best interest to help anybody else into the uh, into the profession to create more competition. But you, you talked about the process you went through of 
yeah, creating the the DVDs with examples of your commentary. What tips would you give to somebody else, both about that kind of selling themselves approach, but also in terms of of what they can do to make themselves a better commentator? Sure. I mean, first of all, I, I love helping people out. By the way, it, it, contrary to what you might think, I, I I don't mind helping out people who are starting out because I was there once and I had to go through that process and I had to work my way up from you know ground zero to where I've got to today. And, and the thing is, everyone everyone this that sounds very egotistical but i do get people come up to me and they say oh you know you're you're very successful given what you do and i said and i'm like yeah that i mean you know i'm very lucky to do what i do but I don't class myself as successful because everyone measures success in different ways. I just enjoy my job and I'm there to do my job. And yes, I get to commentate on some of the best motor racing ever. And I love what I, I do, but I'm I'm still on a journey and I'm not quite where I want to be. Yeah, I don't even know what the end goal looks like. That's the thing. But I'm I'm still getting there. But you know, if people are starting out and they want to build up a profile, the main thing is this industry is who you know and not what you know. It's like so many different walks of life is a case of being able to meet people build up that network of contacts. And then once you've got those contacts, you can be the person that they phone. So if you're starting out and you may, you know, meet somebody who says, Oh, I do um, you know, I run this championship or whatever, or, um, you know, I'm involved with the organization of this event. And you'd be like, okay, well, look, if you're ever looking for a host or a commentator, you know, maybe you consider me, I'm starting out. And it just takes that one thing. And then maybe somebody else is at that event that hosts something else. And it just you know, can lead from there. The main thing is making sure that you've got the preparation and just getting experience. The main thing I noticed with commentating is that I like to say race sharp. So with Gran Turismo, we do five events a year. And from a commentary point of view, that's not enough for me to keep on my A game. So I take on other work outside of it. One, because I like it. And two, because I like to stay sharp and I like to be able to go and do these things. So, you know, if you're a sport come calling or whoever it may be, I, I will take work on if I'm able to, because I like to be able to improve and I'm constantly striving for that. And like I said before, nothing is ever going to be perfect with what you do on air. However, you can make yourself as good as you can. And if you can do that, you're halfway there, you know, build up the network of contacts, get the experience by any means possible. Be reliable is another thing as well. Don't drop somebody last minute. I've turned down so many opportunities, I can't tell you because I've had something booked in, which, you know, to the eyes of a lot of people would have been a lesser opportunity. But I've had a commitment in my diary and that's my commitment and I'm going to go and do that. If you're reliable, if you're focused, if you're enthusiastic and you have the knowledge, you'll get somewhere with it, no doubt. And I guess back to your early story and, and that comment you made earlier on about how the technologies change things, things like our club virtual racing championships and, and the, the dozens of others, similar things, gives people a chance to demonstrate live commentary in a way that they, they probably couldn't have done 10, 15 years ago. Completely. Yeah, it, it, it really is wonderful, the fact that we have the facilities at our disposal to be able to do that. And there are so many commentators who have come through from the world of sim racing who have made that step over to the, the real world of motorsport, if you want to call it that. And yeah, it, it is a wonderful platform for people to be able to develop their skills. And that's where I started out. And I've been very fortunate to have gotten many fun and exciting opportunities since then. And, you know, I've dedicated my entire life to this. I don't know what I would do if I wasn't a commentator. That's the honest truth. I, I, I have no idea because I've got no other skills. I can't hold a spanner for my life. <laughs> 
unlike my father, but I can talk about things. I can talk the hind legs of a donkey, as I can probably you can probably tell from the length of this podcast. So it is just a case of of yeah of, of getting that knowledge, getting that experience, and you know go and approach a sim racing championship. And if they look if they're looking for a commentator, get that experience, spend an evening doing it, and and just build your craft. Start start somewhere because if you don't start, you'll never you know you never improve. Brilliant advice. Thank you very much, Tom. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, guy. Pleasure. Thank you. You can find the link to the one four seven GTA restoration in the notes for this podcast or by searching YouTube for Alpha 147 Tom Brooks. And at the time the podcast went out, the car was still for sale on eBay for considerably less than the cost of restoration. We're back to our normal publishing schedule, so we'll be back in two weeks' time on Sunday the 18th of September at 1.30pm, available to download from all the usual places including YouTube, iTunes, Podcast Addict and Google Podcasts, as well as the club's website. Until then, stay safe. (laughs) 